Welcome to the Bitcoin Source Podcast, everyone. Today, we have a remarkable guest with us, Mr. Luke Broyles, an investor, Bitcoin advocate, and critical thinker. Um, Luke's passion for Bitcoin, real estate investment, and spreading the truth of the gospel makes for an exciting discussion today. So let's start diving into some thought-provoking questions. Welcome, Luke. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. (laughs) Most definitely. And I appreciate you taking time to be on the Bitcoin Source. So Luke, the first question I want to ask you is kind of a question that um, I do to kind of break the ice, which is, as an investor, what initially drew you to Bitcoin and how has your investment thesis evolved over time? Well, um, I mean, first of all, it's, it's great to be here. We, we met first in Boston, uh, but what yeah. month was it? It was earlier this year. I forget when, but um, but yeah, so, so it's good to see you again, and I'm, I'm glad to be doing this. Um, what drew me first was a desire to be risk off which is funny because most people think that Bitcoiners are risk on, trying to find more risk, trying to get the highest returns with the lowest amount of effort, Uh, which to be fair, I was trying to find the best returns per unit of risk. But really, that's the way I was thinking that how do I make the most money possible with the lowest amount of risk? And so I realized that what we were being told, what was being said was not entirely true <laughs> perhaps not even at all true um i i realized that you know they're saying that creating all this currency is going to create deflation and i realized that's simply not what's going to happen when you create more currency it's just obvious prices go up anyone that's read the history book is just as clear as day and uh that's what happened pretty soon we had the worst inflation in the united states in 40 years or 50 years or whatever uh no, yeah yeah 40 45 years roughly speaking, and actually it's it was probably almost certainly significantly worse than what we've been told because CPI is artificially skewed towards things that have the least amount of inflation. So I, I really realized, you know, I should find a hedge against this. I should find a hedge against inflation. So I looked around. Uh, real estate became pretty obvious. Bitcoiners tend to not to like real estate. I still like real estate because basically you can short the dollar. You take out massive amounts of debt at fixed interest rates and go short the dollar and use a physical tangible property that takes energy to create as collateral. Plus the fact that the government will do everything in their power to force real estate prices to go up. So it's over time in the long term, obviously in the short term, their incentives can change, but there's no other way. And so I realized I have to have these hedges. Real estate became a pretty obvious hedge. Um, I had been investing in stocks and mutual funds and all that. And um, Bitcoin came across the radar. It had been on my radar before, but that's really when I started thinking about, like, okay, this seems like a legitimate hedge. If you go down the rabbit hole, learn more and more and more, you realize Bitcoin only. Bitcoin is not just a hedge against inflation. It's a fix for inflation, which that is 100, 100,000 times more valuable than just a hedge against inflation. You know, it, it's like saying, like, like, what's the difference between a medicine that reduces your symptoms versus the medicine that cures it? The medicine that cures it is worth 100,000 times more than something that just dampens the side effects of it. And so that's that's when I really realized that this thing's unique. This thing is not – this asset is unique. It's not like any of these other assets. And it's a personal imperative at reducing risk to buy Bitcoin. It's a moral imperative to buy Bitcoin. And then you realize, wow, everyone else is really exposed to this risk, and they don't realize it. And so then you just want to educate people. As a function of that, and I've been fortunate that people have found what I've said online is interesting enough to follow me. It's 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 a pleasant surprise. So, um, 
Yeah. So really it was that personal incentive. And that's, that's what's so hard about education is that most people don't have that incentive. They don't, they haven't reached a pain point where they feel they need to learn about it. And so it's hard, it's hard to teach someone about something they have no desire to learn about. So, so yeah, that, that's, that's my story, I guess. It's probably a combination of being very fortunate with having lots of curiosity as well as a general understanding of history, a general understanding of math and exponential functions. And yeah, I, I feel very fortunate. I, I never say I was lucky to buy Bitcoin, but I was very lucky to be curious enough to learn about Bitcoin. I think that's where most of the luck for me came from. Yes. And, you know, I couldn't agree more. I think that anybody getting in early to this asset right now is definitely lucky. And Luke, there was something that you said when you talked about pain points. And I, I truly agree with you on that, where I have friends that are in real estate and they are trying to find ways to understand Bitcoin and trying to find ways to intertwine it into their portfolio. But they just can't shake the fact that, you know, real estate has been this tried and true you know, form of wealth for so long that it's just hard for them to shake it. Sometimes they get orange pills, sometimes they don't. But as far as like pain points go, I think that something that I saw recently you talking about on Twitter, which is artificial intelligence, you have um, chat GPT um, doing things with Bitcoin that people never imagined would happen. And I think that that pain point of artificial intelligence is definitely going to wake people up. So how do you envision the role of AI in revolutionizing Bitcoin's transactions between these autonomous machines? And what are the potential advantages and risks associated with this advancement? The thing ultimately is that most real estate investors, you know, and probably your friends included if they're watching this, it's like they're already Bitcoiners and they just don't realize it. Because they, like, like let's think about it. Real estate people, what are they doing? They're buying real estate because they believe real estate's going to go up forever in terms of currency. Not make any more land. Finite, you know, finite amount of land. You know, nobody's, you know, there's always going to be demand for houses. Population is always going to go up. Real estate's going up forever. And so what do they do? They borrow in the weaker asset, the dollars, to buy the stronger asset. And then basically the cash flow from the real estate pays for the maintenance of that real estate. Now, sometimes you can make money off that if you are efficient and you have good margins. Other times you don't make money. I've been in both scenarios where I both made money and lost money <laughs> uh, from real estate just because maintenance is a pain and it's difficult and it, it's a business. You have the asset portion of real estate, which is like I just said, you sell the weak asset to buy the strong asset. And then you have the business side of real estate, which is providing the rent. So really, that's the beauty of real estate is that you get both simultaneously. You have both an asset and a business at the same time, and which then has many more implications, which we'll get to here. But see, the, the funny thing is that when you say that with Bitcoin, though, people have trouble because if you say Bitcoin's going up forever, people are like, what? It's going up forever. Nothing goes up forever. It's like, yeah, actually, it does. Stocks go up forever. Real estate goes up forever. But the problem is we're looking from a frame of reference that is distorted. If you look at the S&P 500, the, the, the America's 500 you know, largest companies, the infamous and famous uh, stock index here, uh, index fund, it, it's flat for the last 50 years if you account for the rate of inflation. This was, this was obvious to me in, in 2020. That's when I began to realize, wait a second, stock market's crashing. Everyone says it's going to crash more. But I was like, no, it's not going to crash because the stock market is not attached to reality. It's simply not. It is attached to credit markets. And those in power, the politicians and those that are at the helm of the credit markets would like you to believe that the credit market and the economy are one of the same because then when the economy is in trouble, 
they can say, oh, well, to save the economy, we have to stimulate the credit markets. We have to print more money. We have to bail out these people. We have to inject more stimulus. We have to save the day and be the hero, you know, and, and that's, that's what we do because we don't believe a lie that printing or that adding ones and zeros is somehow the economy <laughs> when it's not. It's like, again, using real estate, it's like, you know, the, you have one market, which is the building of houses, the construction of houses, the actual creation of the thing, of the house. And then you have the pieces of paper that we're denominating that house in. And they're two separate things. You know, it, it's completely detached from reality. House prices should not be going up. They simply shouldn't be. We are making more houses. We're building more houses. And yes, the population is going up. But as demand goes up, the thing with real estate is that when demand goes up and the value of those houses go up, the free market, you and me, everyday people, entrepreneurs, we go out, we innovate, we build more houses. My grandfather built houses. You know, it's it's just, it's what we do. When there is a need, prices are the communication mechanism for us communicating to each other what the need is. When house prices go up, there is a higher and higher incentive to create more houses and therefore reduce the price of those houses until it reaches an equilibrium. And so that's why real estate investors like real estate, because real estate is distorted from reality. We can take advantage of the distortion credit markets by simply buying a tangible asset that requires energy to produce. We can exploit the deterioration of the currency that is declining that we're pricing that house within. You know, it's it's simply insane. And this is what people realize about real estate. The money is not in the cash flow. The money is in the appreciation. If you buy a million dollars of real estate, let's say at 100% leverage, just for the sake of simplicity. Well, actually, no, let's not. Let's say 80% leverage. So a million dollars of real estate, $800,000 debt, $200,000 equity. You have 20% equity. Let's say over 12 years, the value of that currency falls by 50%. Well, now the mortgage you're paying is half what it used to be. So now instead of a 20% equity position, now you have a 60% equity position because the 80% collapsed by half or 40%. So you triple your equity when the currency falls by half. <laughs> and that that's a, that's the beauty of real estate if you're an investor. The downside is that that only works as long as housing is becoming more expensive in that currency indefinitely forever. And that's why we'll always bail out real estate. People are like, oh, housing is so expensive. It's going to crash, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, but no. Yeah, it'll crash. Yeah, it'll flatline. Yeah, the real estate market will have trouble. Interest rates are unsustainable. Demand is collapsing. But at the end of the day, what are we going to do? Either we can let the collapse happen or we can continue stimulating. The question becomes, how far would it have to collapse? It would have to collapse indefinitely forever because it would collapse. All the credit, all the hot air would just vaporize. And then beyond that, we'll just build more houses. Like if we stop printing money, the price of houses would just go down rapidly at first and then continue to go down at a more rapid rate indefinitely as technology gets better. And um, when it comes to Bitcoin, what's the difference there? The difference with Bitcoin is that you can't make more. You can make more houses. You can't make more Bitcoin. And so with houses, when you have this variable of increasing supply, then price can come back down as we create more supply. But with Bitcoin, you have no more supply. So the only thing that could change is price. Price has to go up when demand goes up because supply cannot go up. And people like to say, oh, well, real estate is finite because there's only so much lakefront property. There's only so much this and that and the other. And, you know, it's it's kind of true, but really a more accurate way of viewing it is that it's scarce. Real estate is not finite. It's just scarce. You know, I mean, I, I was on a call earlier today with someone from the Netherlands. You know, the Dutch are full of centuries of examples where they made more land. You're from Boston. They made a lot of land in Boston, made a lot of lakefront property in Boston. Like if, let's say, 
over the course of the next decades, century or whatever, the value of lakefront property, the best prime real estate in the world, just goes up and up and up indefinitely. Well, eventually the incentive is going to get high enough that we'll just build more waterways. We'll just build more man-made lakes as our energy, as we upgrade to better forms of energy, as we are able to channel more energy. Like we'll just continue satisfying those demands perpetually. And yeah, the value of that real estate may go up, but there's always going to be that mass. You're basically betting against human ingenuity. That's what you're doing. And with Bitcoin, you can't do that. It's designed so that no matter how ingenious humans become, we can't make more. And so that that's, I, I kind of went on there, but that, that's the funny thing when it comes to real estate people is that they're already Bitcoiners and they don't realize it because they understand hard assets go up forever. They understand the currency goes down forever and they're trying to arbitrage the death of the currency. They just don't realize it because they're biased to thinking the real estate's actually going up. And so then that comes to AI. Why is AI both exciting and terrifying? It's exciting because we're going to have a massive explosion of prosperity and innovation over coming years and decades, most probably from this. We can automate entire industries. You know, like, like imagine, and here's the thing, it doesn't have to be perfect. And people don't realize that, oh, Luke, it's decades to be perfect. But it's like, it just has to be better economically. If it can do twice the work and half the cost, it's better. And it's going to put millions of people out of work. If it's 10 times better for one-tenth the cost, it's better. You know, I, I know people that are driving trucks and, you know, it, it's, you know, they believe that, oh, well, you know, autonomous driving is years, decades away. And, and maybe they're right. But the thing is, it, it's inevitable. It's inevitable that a robot drives a car better than a human. In fact, we're already at that point where AI algorithms can drive cars much safer than a human can. So that's already there. The only question is cost and replicability. You know, right now it's pretty re replicable, but not enough to be regulated. And it's expensive, but it's getting cheaper every single year. We've seen that with ChatGPT. We've seen that with other AIs. You know, they're getting exponentially cheaper indefinitely. You know, like I can download AI stuff for free that just five years ago would have been $100,000 or more. Yeah, so so then that's the exciting thing. But then here, here's the terrifying thing for currency holders, and this is perhaps what you mean by a pain point, but you have a credit market that is dependent on rising prices, and you have technology that is trying to force prices down. Inevitably, you have to create currency faster than the innovation is forcing prices down. So let's say, again, let's use real estate as an example. Let's say you have a piece of real estate that costs $100,000. Innovation occurs over a 10-year period, the real value of that house now is, let's say, down 20, 30% because we've gotten 20 or 30% better at building houses. Like, okay, that means not only do we have to keep printing to keep bailing ourselves out of the toxic debt we have, but now we have to keep printing to outpace that innovation. And so that's, that's <laughs> ultimately at the end of the day, the most terrifying thing for those that hold bonds or hold currency is the amount of innovation we have coming. Yeah, the bond market's in trouble. 98% of the countries that surpassed 130% debt to GDP defaulted. The United States is at 134%, I think, something like that. So technically speaking, like we're already, you know, <laughs> on, on a path towards default. So there are those problems. There are the demographic problems. Our demographics are aging. Social Security is ballooning. We have $191 trillion on financial liabilities. You know, those are all problems. The biggest problem is that innovation, like, like I'm talking about there, is that innovation is going to come. It's going to come faster and faster. And we are going to have to print money faster than the right things can innovate and so there's no path forward besides perpetual debasement the cost of goods and services will go down real estate will go down and we'll just keep distorting it forever until the distortion itself fades away it, it's fascinating when, when you view the world in that frame how obvious things become at least to me i've not i've not found a better framework yet 
So maybe I will someday, but right now that's the only thing that makes sense. And like, are you like concerned about AI? Like, it doesn't seem like you're really that worried about it. Like, I feel like a lot of people that have a lot of service-based jobs, like you talked about the truck drivers and stuff like that. But the narrative that I see kind of running around on Twitter right now in, in regards to Bitcoin and AI is more around the sense of, AI is going to take your Bitcoin. It's going to outtrade you for your Bitcoin. It's going to be able to send transactions to a, a cold storage wallet more efficiently than a human being. Like those are kind of the things that I wanted to dig into during this conversation, even though it's such an early stage that most people don't know if it's true, if that's really going to be possible. But, you know, just for my audience, for people that are super new to Bitcoin and they might be reading some craziness on the media or a blog that's talking about this, like, I just wanted to hear your thoughts really on that aspect of it is like, is Luke Broyles concerned about AI? <laughs> yes, definitely. And I think because I'm such an optimist, people may miss that. It's like, oh, wow, you know, you think everything's going to get better. It's so rational. It's like, no, it's, there's concern there. Phrase that everyone likes is that we've less in common with future in the past. And that's true when it comes to innovation. You know, I mean, you know, take smallpox as an example. It's like that was a massive killer until suddenly it's not. We're in the rare period of history where it's no longer a killer. We're in the rare period of history where we actually have treatments for cancer. You know, I have a family member that is alive today because of a treatment that did not exist 30 years ago. She had a good friend that died 30 years ago from the same kind of cancer. I mean, it's like we've less come with the future in the past when it comes to opportunities, innovation, development. Right now, you know, I talked to someone from the Netherlands this morning. I'm talking to you right now. It's like, we're three different people from three different places on the earth. I mean, if I was born here where I am now in Michigan, you know, 100, 200 years ago or so, like, I would never talk to anyone. I mean, right. probably my kids will grow up in a world as weird as this is. They'll probably grow up in a world where every person in the West has their own army of AI assistants and their own, perhaps, humanoid robot that is their assistant. And perhaps by the time they're older, you know, by the time they're my parents' age or whatever, perhaps many people in the developing world will also have that. I mean, really, there's no, like, we might be in the rare period of history where AIs and humanoid robots exist, and there aren't yet billions of them. And so it might be that very narrow slice for it. So, yeah, there are good things, optimistic things, but at the same time, like, chemical weapons were unimaginable until the early 20th century. And now they're completely outdated because now we have nukes. You know, like imagine being in 1925 and being concerned about the future because what if chemical weapons get so much worse? It's like, yeah, that's a concern, but inherently the concern that should be your larger concern is the unknown unknown of the technology that's not been invented yet. You know, you're all worried about mustard gas when you're forgetting that in 20 years nuclear bombs going to be invented. And, you know, even Einstein at one point thought the nuclear bomb was impossible until his pain point was when he saw the Nazis were developing their atomic bomb and they were months ahead, in fact, I think over a year ahead of the United States. And that's when he realized, okay, I have to take a deeper look at, the, you know, he realized nuclear weapons are possible. You, you know, so it's, we all have our own biases. And we're all, we all want to ignore the reality that future technologies going to have better opportunities, better threats. You know, let's, let's take the recent, I don't know if I can say the word, but you know, the C-19 <laughs> thing. Um, it was clear to me that the lab leak hypothesis hypothesis was at least possible from the beginning. It was just absurd that our media and our politicians were dismissing it as a conspiracy theory. Now that now they legitimize it as a possibility. I'm not saying I know that to be the case. It's just it seems possible. And the reason it seems possible is because it's like, well, what happens in the future when 
genetics and every continues its decline, becomes more cheaper and affordable for everyone. It's like, well, that means more people can find new medicines and innovations, but it also means more people can, you know, find bioweapons and make bioweapons at a cheaper cost. You know, I mean, take guns. A white hand's a beautiful thing. I can send someone in Ukraine right now a 3D well, actually, this is a funny thing with Bitcoin. People with Bitcoin, they can send renders for 3D printed guns. And because it's on the Bitcoin blockchain, because it's the most resilient database in the world, you know, people in repressed areas can download a piece of software on, onto their 3D printer that can print a gun. And now they have a weapon to defend it. Like, that's a good thing. But at the same time, they use for bad things, too. Really, what I'm emphasizing here is that I don't know how the future will be. It's just I think it's urgent that people start thinking about that because we are radically we are radically underprepared, underprepared in our education system, in general common sense. It's like the rate of change is increasing, and our brains inherently are having a harder and harder time of keeping up. Like, it's hard enough now. Like, look at, you know, look at our smartphones. We're having a horrible time managing these things. You know, these things came out, uh, what, 2008, 2009? You know, so over... 10, 15 years ago, and we're still feeling massive societal consequences. You know, depression is sky high, and anxiety, people are getting married less, um, you know, people are addicted to these things, and, you know, myself included probably, um, you know, and the, the point there is that the, these things are changing faster than we even realize that it's changing our brains, and so when it comes to AI, do I think it's a threat? Yeah, I think it's a threat. You know, if we want to go down deep the rabbit hole on YouTube and Reddit, there's lots of very terrifying things. There's this there have been multiple people that have given AI the trolley problem. It, probably most people know the trolley problem where basically you have two tracks. You're one person, five people. You can either pull the lever, kill the one person to save the five people. You know, but basically you, there have been people that have been able to give AI the trolley problem and it comes up with disturbing answers. Answers to where literally it prefers its own self-preservation at the expense of every human on earth because it believes its own self-preservation is in the best interest of humanity. You know, I mean, it's like AI doesn't have to be malevolent. Or it doesn't have to be conscious. That's a big debate. It's like, oh, is AI conscious or not? It's like when it comes to this specific topic of the danger, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if it's its own consciousness or if it's just a series of ones and zeros. At the end of the day, if we give it an instruction, if we give it a task, we don't know how it's going to do that line of thinking. But if I t ask an AI to make as many paper clips as possible and it's powerful enough and strong enough, that it starts making paper clips. What if it views everything else as secondary because that's its command, that's its task, and it turns the whole world into a sea of paper clips? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's point being that I don't want to pretend like I know the answers to those questions, but I do know with high certainty that we should start thinking about those questions because we don't know the answers. Ultimately, why is Bitcoin important when it comes to that? It's because it's the best protection in both those scenarios. Let's take the best case for AI. AI makes everything cheaper indefinitely forever at a perpetually faster rate and humans can't keep up. We can't economically keep up with the speed at which AI is creating stuff. Let's take houses again. AI designs robots and technologies that can just make houses, like it can just print houses basically out of thin air for like no cost, you know, figures that out over the course of years or decades. It's like, you know, okay, that's that's what the I call a good outcome. Housing becomes cheaper forever, food becomes cheaper forever, um, energy becomes cheaper forever. You know, even in that best case scenario, there are negative trade-offs. And one of those trade-offs is how on earth you save your money? You can't save your money in your house. You can't save it in anything. You need a form of preserving your purchasing power that the AI can't create more of. And the only thing, as far as I can tell, is Bitcoin. And I've talked to many people that are very educated about AI, and they all say the same thing, that Bitcoin's the only thing that we can know, that we can find, that they can't make more of. You know, even Elon Musk, who is not the biggest fan 
of Bitcoin. Obviously, he's bought Bitcoin, and it's one of the few assets he owns. But you know, he's hated on it plenty of times. You know, even as nuanced as he is in his position on Bitcoin, he's very passionate about AI. I would argue Tesla is on the forefront of AI, and even he says repeatedly that yeah, AI can't stop Bitcoin. They can't. They can't break it. No matter. I mean, and that's a really profound statement because. Pretty much everything AI is going to be able to break. Every economic model, every industry, it'll penetrate everything. And so if this early, we could say with extremely high confidence that they can't break that. To me, that's a pretty strong case to buy Bitcoin. You know, forget the inflation, forget all that. It's like you can't buy stock in an AI company if we're right about AI. You can't, you know, you just can't do it. Those things are not long term viable if AI is correct. You, 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 gold, silver, real estate, oil, all those things are not hedges against AI in its benevolent sense. But then you have the malicious side. What if AI is destructive and wants to destroy things and take things from you? Well, same thing. It can't take it from you. So in both the best case and worst case scenario for AI, Bitcoin is the obvious sole answer. And ultimately, I don't know which of those will occur, but it'll be somewhere in between, probably somewhere in between. But that's my encouragement for people is that don't be... Like be optimistic and be pessimistic, but don't just be one. <laughs> I, I try to be both, and um, you know I, I think if I think the only excusable idea is just ignoring it completely. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Just ignoring it and just letting it run its course, right? You kind of put out these series of topics or inquiring questions on Twitter, and you kind of like exploded on the scene because of it. And like, what role do you believe? And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but what role do you believe social media and online platforms have in spreading this awareness and education about Bitcoin and just overall financial literacy? Yeah, I, I think there's a huge role. I mean, frankly, it's weird. I was never a big social media guy until January this year when I blew up on Twitter. Like, never really passionate about. It. Now I'm like on Twitter and YouTube every day. It's, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of work. I don't think people, you know, it's easy to say it's a lot of work, but it's actually a lot of work. Um, <laughs> granted, there have been really good results. I'm very happy with it, and hopefully, it'll expand and have help in the future. But it's it's a lot of work. And but but the reason I do it, as conflicted as I am about it, of having my brain online that much every day, is that I just think it's critical. I think underappreciation of people of what kind of change could happen in the future. Like we're already behind. Like I said earlier, we're already behind today's technology. They, like there are so many questions we don't know the answers to. Like it's already possible for people to record their dreams with MRIs and weird technologies like straight up sci-fi stuff. Like we can already record our dreams. It's just, it's not cheap enough to be mass applicable yet. Like that's weird. We don't know the answers to that. We don't know the side effects of that. You know, and then you have Neuralink where you can literally plug your brain into a computer chip. You have brain to computer interfaces and you have computer to brain interfaces. Both of those are very different things and have so many questions that we just don't know the answers to. And granted, there are pros and cons. You know, it, it can help people that have disabilities. But on the other hand, like everything else, there are trade-offs. We don't know the answers to that. You know, we're, we're at the point where we can clone humans. What are the answers to that? We're at the point where we can genetically modify humans to have three parents. What are the answers to that? I mean, like, these things aren't sci-fi. They're actually here. And do we have any moral framework? Do we have any legal framework? Do we have any societal or cultural framework for these things? Like, I, I don't think so at all. And so, you know, I... I as you brought up the gospel and me being Christian at the beginning of the show, I mean, as a Christian, that worries me because I've just seen in the Christian church over the last 10, 15 years, like just it's, it's very disturbing, uh, certain trends. 
And so I don't think the Christian church is ready. I don't think the American government is ready. I don't think any government is ready. And I don't think culture is ready. I don't, you know, all these things we're not ready for. And then you have, you know, my filmmaking background. Like one of the reasons I don't try to monetize my movie anymore is just because I know it's going to be gone. You know, like who's going to want to watch? And uh, there's, you know, there's the Napoleon movie that's coming out later this year. And, you know, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to probably be very good. Napoleon's radically underappreciated <laughs> as a historical figure. Um, but it's like, you know, people aren't going to watch movies in the future. They'll just watch VR immersive experiences. You know, who's going to want to watch? That sounds crazy today, but it's like, who's going to want to listen to a radio program about Napoleon? But you could just watch a movie. It releases more dopamine. And then after VR, what happens when you can just plug your brain in? I mean, it's, I, you know, now, now I'm getting weird, but it's, <laughs> which perhaps I was always weird, but it's, what role does it play? I think, I think it's just critical people learn that things are going to change. And I don't know what the answers are, but people, but I hope I can inspire other people to start thinking about these things because it concerns me. Like, I don't want to say I'm smart, but I, I don't think I'm dumb. <laughs> and I've thought about these things for years and I just still don't know the answers. Moral answers, the technical answers, it's just, you know, and I spend a lot of time thinking about it. And I know if I don't know, it's like, goodness, we got to have many more brains. We got to have many more minds thinking about this. You know, people that are of all different walks of life, all different backgrounds. And ultimately, at the end of the day, no matter what those innovations are, no matter what those developments, dangers, opportunities are, I think Bitcoin is the essential thing for people to understand. It's a baseline for that. Because no matter those questions you aren't going to be able to economically survive in that world without bitcoin like th this whole world of investors buying real estate it's like that's going to be gone in 30 years or, or stocks or gold it's like people don't realize like 20 30 years like like people are getting mortgages on houses and by the time those mortgages are up the world's going to be different people aren't people aren't going to do it anymore or or if i get hate for saying that sometimes let me clarify. Even if they do, it's going to be dwarfed by whatever's next. In the same way people today still use the radio, it's, it's like for every person that uses the radio, there are 100,000 people <laughs> or or at least 1,000 people that watch podcasts like the one we're on right now. In the same way, yeah, maybe there will always be people that invest in real estate and companies or whatever, but it's like it's going to be a perpetually smaller percentage of the population and the economy perpetually forever. So, so yeah, what role does it play? What role do I play? I mean... I, I, I'm just trying to do my best of get, getting people to think about these things because Bitcoin is an example. People are really behind when it comes to Bitcoin and they're even more behind when it comes to the innovations after Bitcoin. That's why I always emphasize that the majority of Bitcoin's growth is after it's reached every exchange rate with the US dollar, a million, 10 million, 100 million, billion. Um, the majority of the growth is after that. And as concerning as it is that people are not paying attention to Bitcoin, it's even more concerning not paying attention to what is that, whatever is after it. I guess that's the role I, I play. I, 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 hope, I hope that people start thinking about that because we're just not. Yeah, definitely. It definitely got the wheel spinning in my brain just listening to you talk about it. And, you know, that's just such a fire answer. I just think that people, they just need to do their part, like you say. And, you know, they just have to realize that learning about something, being educated and not being flummoxed on what is the next thing or why is Bitcoin important is continuing to take it day by day and just doing your part. And I think that that's the hardest thing for people right now. Everybody wants to be trending and cool. And it's like, even for me doing this podcast, like I have a guest on, I try to stretch and expound as much as I can. That's why it's called the Bitcoin source. I want to know the sources of people's knowledge of why they love the asset beyond 
number go up or you know just having sovereign wealth like what is the underlying thought process behind why you think that this is important and uh you're a perfect example of someone that i have on the show that really stretches the imagination and stretches the limits of critical thinking so i think that that's vastly um important so thank you luke for um giving me such clear insight on the way that you think about bitcoin you know kind of looking ahead right which is uh you know what excites you the most about the future and where do you see bitcoin and i know people always say well i don't know what the future holds right but it's like where do you see the change in the landscape of bitcoin for positive change in the next few years despite the sec and all this crazy stuff uh, well i about the sec they don't have any power they don't have any influence you know they just don't like people that are in radio they don't have any say on what the internet's going to do it's like they have no you know people are so worried about blackrock or or sec or etf stuff it's just it, it it's all noise it's it's so irrelevant <laughs> and in their proper time scale that it's like almost embarrassing <laughs> but but you know it, it, i understand why people care about that it, it is relevant in today's world it's just today's world as we know it is going to be gone in 15 20 years and, and and again that sounds insane to people until you look back 20 years like the world today versus the world 20 years ago is entirely different you know i remember when i would go entire weeks without being on the internet kind of weird today isn't it you know, I, I, it, the world is entirely different and the next 20 years will be even faster than the last 20. So, um, so yeah, yeah. I, I, when it comes to SECs, did you mention it? I, I just don't care that much. Um, yeah, there are threats, but ultimately, what do I know? I know that there are uh, three and a half, four billion adults in the world that don't have property rights that can't save purchasing power in the future. And right now, the world, as progressed and advanced as it is, is progressing as a function of basically a billion adults that are innovating to the global economy because they have the means they, they have food they have shelter if they water their housing they're not trying to survive day to day and so the beautiful thing is wow what if you know what if bitcoin could plug in let's say another two three billion adults to that i mean number one you bring billions more people out of poverty and out of lower standards of living into higher standards of living but then it's like how much faster do we innovate so, again so it goes to what i was saying before Right now, we have a billion people, a billion minds contributing to the global economy, 40 hours a week, 2,000 hours a year. What happens when you have 4 billion people doing the same thing in 30, 40 years? You know, that's four times the innovation, four times the threat, four times the opportunity. And then what happens when you have a million or 100 million or 100 billion AI algorithms that can do most of what a human brain could do, intellectually speaking, that work 24-7. I mean, yeah, people, <laughs> it's, yeah. So ultimately, what's the exciting thing is that housing could very well become cheaper for billions of people. Food could become cheaper. Energy could become cheaper perpetually, indefinitely. And really, that's a beautiful thing. And I think the reason why people have trouble understanding that's what Bitcoiners care about is because they have trouble understanding that that's the whole case. Uh, for Bitcoin, is that prices go down, or they should go down? You know, we're biased to think prices go up. Again, house prices should be collapsing, food prices should be collapsing, every all prices should be collapsing, and yet they're skyrocketing. And as soon as you frame your reference from USD to BTC, then it becomes obvious what's happening, and then it becomes obvious, oh wow, this is going to bring millions of people into standards of living that they can't 
they can't access now because of financial repression and because the energy is simply not there. And so that's, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I believe Bitcoin is the single largest humanitarian effort of the 21st century. And I know that's a bold claim, but I, I think it is. I think when it comes to preventing needless human suffering or preventing early death, uh, I think I think Bitcoin is the most logical, most urgent thing that could be done, even more so than everything else that is needed in the world. I, I think that's needed the most. You know, millions of people die every single year from needless, stupid inefficiency. And we become blind to that because we become distracted with the wars, we become distracted with the famines and all those things. And those things are horrible. But again, using the metaphor of medicine, it's like if we're so distracted by the symptoms of a disease that we miss the disease itself, you know, that curing a disease is the single most urgent thing at reducing the suffering of the symptoms. I mean, it's just that simple. Thank you, Luke, man. Yeah, that was yeah. just awesome, brother. And, uh, you know, before we go, you know, I just want to thank you for taking time to be on this show and just really giving me an incredible session on just AI, Bitcoin, your thought process, real estate. This has been an awesome conversation. I hope to have you back in the future. Uh, once again, everybody, Great. Luke Broyles. Thank you very much. Yeah, if they want to follow me, I'm on Twitter, Luke Broyles, B-R-Y-L-E-S, or YouTube. A lot of people still don't know I have a YouTube channel, which I don't know how. <laughs> but yeah, I'm on YouTube as well. Uh, fundraising for my movie, The Case for Bitcoin. You can find it on Geyser. Fundraise $20,000 and in the process, Orange Pill, 20,000 people. So if someone wants to donate $10 or $30, hopefully they've Orange Pilled 30 people or 10 people or whatever. So uh, so yeah, if people want to help with that, that's the main way they can show support. Or or in, in your case, if, if I'm ever out in Boston, you should come out and meet us both in, in Boston again. So um, yeah, appreciate the time. Appreciate the questions. Yep, right. Bye. Thank you, Luke. Da 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 da